I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part five in the series, Uncompromising Orthodoxy. Often, those disillusioned and hurt by church fantasize about a bygone era in which the organization and institution of church were unimportant to Christians. But such an era never existed. Why? Why has coming together at a certain time, in a certain place, around the same ancient practices, always been fundamental to orthodoxy? Stop me if you've heard this one. I like God, but not church. Or, I'm interested in Jesus, but I've lost faith in the institution, the whole organized religion, the church thing. Or here's a classic, I just want to figure out my spirituality on my own. Back in 2014, a self-proclaimed business educator named Donald Miller posted a blog, and the Christian internet went bananas. Now, maybe you're not dorky enough to know what any of that means, so here's context. Donald Miller, start here, is a dude who lived in Portland, and back in 2003, he published a book called Blue Like Jazz. Now, if you weren't traveling in Christian circles at the time, let me tell you, this is what we in the business call a real popular book. And uh, as I recall, this dude was sort of uh, musing about being a young Christian and having doubts and dealing with the hypocrisy of the church and having issues with Christianity, wanting to maintain faith, whatever. He was going to college or something. And uh, to be fair, it was a long time ago. I was 20 years old in 2003, and I, was, I read someone else's dog-eared copy traveling in a van at the time. And I was a young, edgy Christian. Now I'm a, a slightly less young, edgy Christian. But back in 2003... Uh, all I remember thinking was, okay, sure, whatever, read college, whatever that is, you know. No disrespect, of course, to Mr. Miller. I'm sure he's an avid listener of this podcast. So, Mr. Miller, congratulations on your successful career. And, uh, and what would Donald Miller need my approval for anyway? Because people loved this thing. Ooh, they ate it up. My God, they said. He's thinking outside the box, they said. And then some old people were like, hmm, we're not so sure about this. <laughs> Uh, I don't know why that's my old person voice. I could do better. Some old people were like, we're not so sure about that. (laughs) And that just made the young readers love it even more. Ooh, my parents don't like it. This is the best thing. And mind you, this is 2003 when publishing was still a viable industry. Years before Facebook or Instagram, books were still a present vital medium of the pop culture conversation. And Mr. Miller became, whether he intended to or not, one of the faces of what they were then calling the emerging church movement. Now, again, if you weren't there, I've got to tell you, this movement, whatever the heck it was, was a scary thing for old school Christians. They didn't like it. In fact, they said the term emerging church the way that conservatives say liberals and vice versa. It's an insult. Um, The emerging church for shame. Well, you know, life goes on. The so-called emerging church movement died out, more or less. And Mr. Miller went on to write other books, mostly about business, and he did other things in the corporate world. But that didn't stop him from posting a blog in 2014, I believe, uh, detailing his grand exit from the institution known as church. The long and short of it was, you can look it up, but I think that he didn't really feel like he got anything out of the traditional church model. He didn't learn that way. He had his own community. He didn't need it which is a weird thing to say, but we'll get into all that later. Now, this was more than a decade after the big popular Blue Like Jazz book had hit the you know, shelves, bookshelves. 
I was at this time over 30 working as a pastor because what I was doing is really important in this story. Um, But contextually, here's how it hit me. Blogs were still a thing back then. And so the Christian internet decided to fight fire with fire. To the blogger sphere, they all said at once. And oh my God, the digital ink spilled over this thing. It was embarrassing. It was, uh, I was still in seminary then. My classmates were clutching their pearls. They gasped, did you read what Donald Miller said about not going to church? And I was like, yeah, I guess. What about it? We have to do something. Like, well, what, what are we going to do about it? Then, I don't know. Write a blog rebuttal and whoo, man, Google it now. They're still all over the place. Here they came, an avalanche of these things. It was embarrassing. It was as if Donald Miller had exposed this terrible secret and the entire Christian movement was on the verge of collapse. Mind you, this isn't a, not that this makes him unqualified to comment on things in the world, but this wasn't like a pastor or a theologian. This is a dude who works with corporations to build brands. This is, wasn't some kind of, you know, theological thought leader or politician. This is a dude who gets contracted by Intel and Zaxby's, uh, which is a southern fast food joint that specializes in chicken fingers. This dude is helping Zaxby's tell a story around their brand. Heck, I can do that. I mean, Zaxby's. <laughs> Want to do some damage to your body and to the planet? Come eat some dead birds. <laughs> Zaxby's. Because young people are into authenticity, I'm told. I know you guys hate me for all these jokes. So before I move on from this one, I'll confess to everyone that there was a time when I ate a lot of Zaxby's. In fact, uh, you don't have them here, but we used to think Zaxby's back in the South and uh, as a teenager, they're super, super fancy because it's a fast food restaurant, but they gave you a pager while you waited, which made us think of the Olive Garden, which for my family was the fanciest of restaurants. In fact, if you were going out for a nice dinner, your two choices were Olive Garden or Outback Steakhouse. Fancy. <laughs> anyway... The way I figured back in 2014 when this blog came out, why are we losing our marbles over what Donald Miller says about church? Again, no disrespect toward Mr. Miller. It's just, is this new? Isn't this a deeply familiar story? Put him, you know, join the club, Donald Miller. I lived that story. Many of you lived that story. Some of you, whether you're in the room right now or you're listening on the podcast, you are living that story. You've had a bad go of the whole church thing, something went wrong, someone failed you, the flimsy dam that holds back the surging flash flood of human hypocrisy erupted as it inevitably does, and you were swept out to sea. It's a valid story. It's a real one. I lived it. But there's a problem too, and the problem is what happens when you try to strip away church from Christianity. And there's irony there as well, because I can't speak for everyone who went through a spell of disillusionment or quote-unquote with organized religion, but me and approximately a bajillion people I've come across with similar stories, we loved to appeal to what we called the early church, to a bygone era of the way things used to be before church was tarnished by modern American evangelicalism. And I'll admit, I hadn't really done any research back then. I didn't really know anything uh, about what it was like in the early church compared to now when it comes to getting together to have church when I was carrying on like this. But it seemed obvious to me that we had so drifted from whatever were the beginnings of the Christian movement that this, all this, couldn't be anything like it. So I wanted out. I like God but not the church, I said. I'm interested in Jesus, but I've lost faith in the institution of church. I want to figure out my spirituality on my own. Open your Bibles to Hebrews in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 10. 
If you're new to the Bible, feel free to consult the table of contents. Hebrews chapter 10, we are in an ongoing series all about doctrine, which sounds thrilling, I know. And trust me, the hilariousness of carrying on with a sermon about the importance of church on a notoriously unattended Sunday is not lost on me. And it's funny because this is the Pacific Northwest. No one cares about American football except who? Like two people, Tab and Cam. Cam's walking around and here's, oh, there's, no, come on, it was rhetorical. Don't mess up my flow, Joe. Um, In the South, uh, college football is the big thing. But out here, people care about, well, I guess basketball? Um, in the South, if you bring up basketball, the avid sports fan would say, like, oh, right, the one with the orange ball. Um, but today, apparently, on this one day, everyone cares about football. Uh, not so, you lot, extra blessed, you guys, for sure going to heaven after this. Uh, but we've been uh, taking things back to fundamentals throughout this series, arguing that what we believe forms the things that we do, and it in turn shapes the person that you are becoming over time. Belief or doctrine matters. And no, all the right belief in the whole world cannot save you, nor is right belief an impervious armor against the doubts and questions that all disciples of Jesus face, but orthodoxy or right belief is about establishing the foundation, the core of what actually makes us just Jesus' disciples in the first place. Wherever people come together around an idea, a value, a belief, whatever, there exist parameters for establishing who truly belongs to that foundation. We believe these things, and that's what we have in common, and that's what this movement is. It's about going forward together in unity. It's about holding one another to foundational truths, teaching and empowering one another to persist in the truth without compromising the truth. Unity, one another, one another. So, Notice, to do any of this, you need the group in the first place, the gathering together, the one another, the church. On that note, let's read from Hebrews chapter 10. Would you guys stand with me as a gesture of reverence for the reading of Scripture? Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us, Through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. These words are inspired by God. Go ahead and take a seat. Do not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. Notice, before the author reaches this pentultimate church verse, do not give up meeting together, They've already presupposed that the letter will be turned over, not to an individual, but to the community of faith, the church. We have confidence. We have a priest. Let us draw near and on and on and on. But the author of Hebrews wasn't the first one to articulate this idea. This is, after all, a letter written by and to disciples of Jesus. Turn to the left in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. Mark, chapter 4. You guys all right? 
Still with me? Great, thanks. Um, can you focus knowing there's a thing on television that you're missing right now? There's a, the uh, Atlanta Falcons? No. I actually don't know this time. Huh? Bengals and Rams. Well, interesting. What, and what cities are those? Really? Do people care about either of those places in this room? Oh, you have friends in Cincinnati? Yeah, sure, they, they must care. Must be a big deal for them. Right, yeah. Yeah, I tried my inroad to try to like relate to my dad, who was, you know, really into all the sports. Let's just pick a mascot, you know, like, uh, but then I messed up because in Georgia, again, college football is the thing. And the Florida team are alligators, which is the coolest mascot one can have. The Georgia team's a bulldog, and you guys already know what I think about that. So <laughs> I did a whole, like, yeah, alligators, and this is a bitter, bitter rivalry. To this day, I don't know what I'm talking about, but I can antagonize people back home by being like, Florida, I don't even know if it's still a team or anything, but they get real upset. All right. Stop distracting me. You know how focus problems. Mark chapter 4, beginning with verse 31. Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. It's like he's in trouble. Who are my mother and my brothers? Jesus asked. To be clear, this question would have seemed as silly then as it does now. Who's your mom? Your mom is your mom. Mary, we, we just told you. She's right outside. But, as usual, Jesus is up to something provocative. Look down at verse 34. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Notice, in context, those seated in a circle around him would have been Jesus' students, his apprentices, his disciples. They're listening to him teach. This is Jesus' inner circle, part of what we would call his community. But to Jesus, they're not just students or insiders or apprentices. They are his family. But that idea is by no means unique to this particular passage. Think about it like this. Jesus famously referred to God himself as what? Father, right, yeah. And he refers to his apprentices as brothers and sisters. And that term, brothers and sisters or Adelphos, shows up throughout the New Testament some 342 times. It is easily the predominantly used term to describe the relationship shared by those who follow Jesus, brothers and sisters or family. Talking about people in your life as family to us sounds sweet and sentimental or like something from the Fast and Furious movies. But in Jesus' context, the idea of community as a family was radical and subversive. See, the world in which Jesus lived was deeply collectivist, meaning they had a strong group identity. You're thinking, what the heck does that mean? Here's a definition from Bruce Molina. In a strong group society, the person perceives himself or herself to be a member of a group and responsible to the group for his or her actions, destiny, career, development, and life in general. The individual person is embedded in the group and is free to do what he or she feels right and necessary only if in accord with group norms and only if the action is in the group's best interest. The group has priority over the individual member. This kind of culture is still well represented throughout the world, places like Korea, most of Asia, the, the Arabic world, parts of Africa, really most places beyond our Western society. In the Western world, we have 
what sociologists call an individualist society or a weak group society. It's the other way around. The individual takes priority over the group. The desires and happiness of the individual always take precedence over the tribe or the collection, the family, and we, as a general rule, act in our own best interest, and we consider that justifiable. So for many, if not most of us, the whole idea of a strong group society sounds at best very strange, and at worst, it sounds bad or absurd or oppressive. And the dichotomy between the two widens as the Western church continues to evolve with culture. In the West, we're seeing a rise in something called tribalism, which is also completely unlike collectivism or the group identity. Tribalism is less of a community of unified belief than it is an angry mob defined by what it is against. And this is made manifest in things like outrage culture or takedown culture, the word police, the, the COVID protocol, moral police and vaccine hysteria and conspiracy obsession and anti-maskers and mask police and the politicization of everything. The intense us versus them boundaries with an emphasis on this idea of being on the right side of history. That is a vocal subculture, and it's a uh, tribalist subculture. That's not the same thing as a collectivist subculture. In collectivist cultures, there are typically clearly defined gender roles and paradigms, ongoing interfamily roles. There's the whole thing of honor and shame, ideas that seem foreign or even alien to the average American. And I bring all that up just to highlight the fact that the individualistic way of life that we take for granted was absolutely unheard of in Jesus' day. In the world Jesus knew, your primary concern was for the family, not the individual in the family. In Jesus' world, your very identity was inseparable from your immediate family. If you remember the story of Jesus scorned in his hometown, he comes into Nazareth, and they identified Jesus by saying, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother Mary? Aren't his brothers and sisters still with us? Not, isn't this guy Jesus the teacher or the rabbi? Isn't this guy the one who's trying to do these things? They identify him immediately. He's this guy's son. He's this lady's uh, son. These are his brothers and sisters. You were known in the context of your family in Jesus' day. So Jesus' world was collectivist, strong group identity. But Jesus refers to his community, his students and followers and friends, most of them well outside of his family, as his brothers and sisters. His primary bond and most important relationship, blood or not, tribe or not, that was a radical idea. And it wasn't just because Jesus expected his community to function like a family. That's a very old idea. Really, from page one of the Bible, we're presented with a deeply relational portrait of God himself. On page one, God announces, let us make people in our own image and likeness. And scholars debate whether the us is like the divine counsel or what we often call angels and similar beings, or is he talking to the other members of the Trinity? But really, either way, it reveals that God is, by default, from page one, relational. And what he does is relational. One of my professors, Gary Brashears, always says, God is a family who makes families meaning that we exist at all is an outworking of God's overflowing relational love, and we were created 
for relational love. So the idea that the people of God were, in some sense, a family is not that radical, and it's not new to Jesus' teaching. What's radical is that Jesus doesn't define his family by blood, but in his language, whoever does God's will. Another way of saying that would be whoever is orthodox, which is incredible given how intensely defined the lines between Jews and Gentiles have been drawn in Jesus' culture. But Jesus is here saying that his true family is open to Jews and Gentiles. The family of God is multi-ethnic. Men and women from all nations of many ages could be anyone who is obedient to the will of God or who follows the way. And not only does Jesus extend his family beyond the Father's bloodline, he elevates the new family orthodoxy to the place of primary importance. Jesus was the oldest living male in his family line, so he would have been responsible for the leadership in his family. But he believed that his family is part of a much bigger family and that that family, the family of God, not just by blood, was more important. And if you think I'm reaching... Just look at what Jesus teaches elsewhere. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword, for I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Think about Jesus saying that into the context of his collectivist culture. It's insane. We know Jesus taught consistent nonviolence and that later he specifically commanded Peter, thus all subsequent disciples, to lay down the sword for good. So we're dealing with a metaphor here, but the thinly veiled metaphor is that following Jesus is inherently divisive. And many of you know this very well. You're still there. You're still here. Well done. Because Jesus taught that for those of you who will have to choose between certain relationships and the family of God. You either pick the family of God or you cannot follow Jesus. So think about that and realize that in Jesus' culture, there was zero tolerance for a diversity of religious belief. To this day, if an Orthodox Jew converts to Christianity, the family is, uh, holds a funeral to recognize that they are dead to the family. There are similar practices in devout Muslim homes. Some streams even observe the honor killing of those who denounce Islam. In some countries, it is a capital offense to convert from Islam to Christianity. So Jesus' call to the family and the radical shift of priorities was an incredible invitation, to say the least. And though our culture is obviously quite different, I would argue that there are two reasons Jesus' call to the family is even more radical for you and me. Because Jesus doesn't present a model for individualism in which the individual takes priority over the group and the desires and happiness of the one take precedence over the many. This is wildly at odds with the American sensibility. To demonstrate, I'll make everyone uncomfortable. Let me read an earlier quote again, but I'm going to replace the term group with the church. Now notice the way this makes you feel as I read it. In the church, the person perceives himself or herself to be a member of the church and responsible to the church for his or her actions, destiny, career, development, and life in general. The individual person is embedded in the church and is free to do what he or she feels right and necessary only if in accord with the church norms and only if the action is in the church's best interest. 
The church has priority over the individual member. How does that feel? There's this weird, pervasive myth floating around in post-evangelical circles, and it is the myth of an idyllic and long-gone Christian era during which there were no church buildings, no organized and religious rituals, no hymns, no communion, no sermons. Instead, it was all organic, baby. People just hung out, you know, they just shared life, you know. Walk in the forest was church, man. Sunrise is church, man. Come on. And they didn't have all these stupid, petty problems, man. None of this bureaucracy, no centralized authority. It was free. Yeah, none of that's true. And don't believe me, just read the New Testament. The bulk of it is dedicated to centralized church authority dealing with the sin and petty squabbles of the local church communities throughout the ancient Mediterranean. Sure, they didn't have electric guitars and coffee carafes in the first century, but the basic components of the church gathering have actually endured for centuries of the Jesus movement all over the world, coming together in a specific plan, consistent rhythm, in a specific place, all kinds of different people united around discipleship to Jesus, not just best buds hanging out when they feel like it. There have always been things like hymns and singing and opening the scriptures together to learn, preaching, pursuing the spirit of God, communion, food and drink, leadership, authority. All that has always been a part of this thing called the Jesus movement. Or the church. In fact, if you told a first century Christian, well, my church is, I just hang out with my good buddy and we figure out our spirituality on our own. The first century Christian would have probably said, what the heck are you talking about? Because that's not church. And maybe you think I'm going on about this because I work here, so sure, I believe in the idea, but you would honestly have it backward. I work here because I believe in the idea. I don't have to be here. I want to be a part of this. I believed this before it was my job, and I will believe it long after it isn't. Church is the vehicle, the arena in which we live out our discipleship to Jesus. It has always and only been done this way from Jesus himself to 2022 and on. Not organic walks in the woods with some buds, but the weekly coming together with friends and strangers to learn and sing and read and worship and give ourselves away. Church. Some scholars, like uh, Scott McKnight, for example, go as far as to argue that the church of Jesus is what Jesus called the kingdom of God, that there are essentially two ways of describing the same concept. But that freaks us out because we are a people of individualism. Writer and professor David Brooks writes this, we live in a culture of hyper-individualism. There is always a tension between self and society. Over the past 60 years, we have swung too far toward the self. The only way out is to rebalance, to build a culture that steers people toward relation, community, and commitment, the things we most deeply yearn for, yet undermine with our hyper-individualistic way of life. Notice the word commitment. In my years working at, leading, and participating in, planting the church, I can tell you that an unwillingness to commit is easily the most ubiquitous toxin to pollute church and community. More so than, you know, people struggling with their imperfections and working out their own sin and not knowing the Bible, but a lack of commitment. Because to actually embrace community, one must relinquish part of their autonomy. They must open themselves to the vulnerability of loving and having imperfect voices speaking into their decisions and their actions and their lives. There's no live your own truth in church. 
There's no only God can judge me in church. You, in a sense, belong to the community and they belong to you. And you have to commit to one thing, which inevitably means saying no to other things. So you end up with people torn between the the things in their lives and what they are and aren't willing to do. You end up with people who are willing to show up but not pitch in or to talk but not do the practices in their communities or to come to community night but not the Sunday gathering or to come to the Sunday gathering but not the community night. And this approach warps church itself into a veritable buffet table for the consumer's enjoyment. I'll have this but not this. I want what I like, not what I don't like. And people say, oh, I wasn't getting anything out of it. Were you putting anything into it? Remember, Jesus does not use initial maturity as a qualification for community, but he does use commitment. The idea is that on a journey, we are going somewhere. We are moving from flaky to committed, from consumerist to contributive. But we know, believe me, that the journey is complicated and messy. Ask my community. I'm messy. So even though the standard is very high, commitment, it's not idealistic. In 1938, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote what is largely considered one of the landmark works on Christian community, and in it he says this, The sooner this shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both, that we're not perfect, by the way. Every human wish... Uh, dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves the dream of community more than the community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. Even through his personal, personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial, the man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God and himself accordingly. Church is screwed up. It is messy and complicated, so there are all sorts of very, very very valid problems that inevitably surface when people share life and discipleship. Why? Because people are there. But there's also an avalanche of community issues that bloom from the simple recipe of a person or persons who enter a community with an expectation, it should be this way. And they are thus undone when that expectation is not met. This should look like my old church, or no one should disappoint me, or they should sing the songs I like, or I should never be offended, or they should adopt my personal pet project, or the pastor should be this way, not that way. The people in my community should be this way, not that way. And so the idealist is notorious for migrating from one community to another in search of that perfect and elusive group that checks all their boxes. When people come up to me and they say, man, I'm really liking this church early on. (laughs) They say, man... (laughs) I'm really liking this church because the church I was at last time, they were awful and they, they were terrible in these ways. And I often, this is not a joke, I often tell them, oh, believe me, give us a second. <laughs> we will disappoint you. In fact, it's our new slogan, Fan, <laughs> Fan City, we will disappoint you. I'm kidding. Over the years, I've heard lots of people explain why they've left our church or another church. And it always has to do with someone else blowing it. The leadership failed me, my community failed me, whatever it might be. I have yet to hear a single person say, man, I have really failed my community. 
I failed my leadership. I failed my church. But when you think of church as a service provided for you, rather than a family in need of your participation, it's easy to boil your experience of church down to what amounts to a Yelp review. People populate and lead this church. It is imperfect. Now, we're not resigned to our own imperfection. We care. We are certainly aware of it. We want to grow and to change and repent and mature and learn and become more like Jesus all the time. I think I can say this with integrity for every single person who's in leadership at Van City Church, but it will be a messy journey. That's why I think the two most important components of a healthy community of disciples are vulnerability and accountability. In his book on community, M. Scott Peck writes this, There can be no vulnerability without risk. There can be no community without vulnerability. There can be no peace and ultimately no life without community. When people actually communicate, when we actually share anything of real substance, things get risky. You open yourself up to be hurt and disappointed, and the people in your community can and should hold you accountable for the things you do and say, which can be a painful process. Believe me, I've been through it. And please listen, you will not mature as a disciple of Jesus without vulnerability and accountability. If you only have vulnerability, you might feel pretty good about being open, everybody share stuff, but no one gets to call one another to a higher standard, so there's no real change. And thus, community, like church, become, uh, you know, begins to exist just to make you feel good, and if it doesn't, you bail. And if you attempt accountability without vulnerability, nothing really happens because you're just correcting one another with no real access to one another's hearts or minds or lives. You have to have both things in the same place. And it's not just you. Parents, your kids need to grow up in the messy, imperfect environment of church. I just heard this week that I was listening to an author and speaker uh, who writes extensively on parenting as a disciple of Jesus. And it was fascinating. She was saying that one of the most important things that you can do for your children for their formation and maturity is to involve them very young in church. And she argued that a child's confidence and security are nurtured when they learn that they can be loved and guided by other trustworthy adults apart from their parents that all belong to the same greater family. And she truly believed that the church nursery, that was her words, the church nursery was one of the reasons that her kids, with all their disparate personalities and wirelings, the church nursery was one of the reasons that they became confident and developed important people skills. Because they were released into the care of other adults who would love them and care for them and spend time with them. And my kids are still small, but I can tell you right now, I have watched my kids grow so much just from being present every single week in Van City Kids on Sunday and in our Van City community on Tuesday. We spend a lot of time warning people about the inevitable messiness of church, but we need to spend just as much time celebrating that same messiness. Do you think people in recovery groups like AA who are experiencing real transformation and healing from vulnerability and accountability wish that it wasn't messy? There is no sanitized, sterilized form of vulnerability and accountability. It is by nature a messy process. 
I can't have true community with the people I love unless they know me and I know them and we find some way to endure the complicated messiness of it all. We are at both our best and our worst with the people we love the most. Ask my wife, Abby, ask my kids, ask my closest friends. I have said and done all the meanest things to the people I love the most. And the people I love the most are the ones who call me on it. We need each other for this. The the New Testament uses the term one another over and over again when it teaches us how to live in community. Think about some of those texts, the way that they sound. Be devoted to one another and brotherly loved. Honor one another above yourselves. Live in harmony with one another. Love one another. Stop passing judgment on one another. Accept one another. Then, just as Christ accepted you, instruct one another. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And that's just Romans. There's 59 such commands in the New Testament. And look, they all assume that if you follow Jesus, you are also conducting your discipleship in the context of the church. Listen to this quote. It's one of my favorite quotes about the importance of the church community. Spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. People who remain connected with their brothers and sisters in the local church almost invariably grow in self-understanding and they mature in their ability to relate in healthy ways to God and to their fellow human beings. This is especially the case for those courageous Christians who stick it out through the often messy process of interpersonal discord and conflict resolution. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay also grow. People who leave do not grow. It is a simple but profound biblical reality that we both grow and thrive together or we do not grow much at all. Now look, I get it. I'm the pastor and employee of Van City Church. Am I really going to get up here and tell you not to come to church? And I get it on another level. I have had bad experiences with church. I have been hurt. I've been uh, seen really messed up stuff. I've been cynical and disillusioned. I get it. I get it. I get it. But here I am. Why? Because through all of that, I have yet come to believe, and with centuries of Orthodox Christianity, that discipleship to Jesus always and only happens in the context of community within the church. This is why it shows up in the earliest creeds. Think about how we've been reading the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, both of which say, I believe in the holy church, the communion of saints. I believe in one holy and apostolic church, all the way back to the earliest foundational creeds of Christianity. When we say, I want to figure out my spirituality on my own, what we're really often saying is, I want to make up my own spirituality. We're saying, I want to go poking around until I find someone who tells me exactly what I want to hear. What an absolute waste of time. What a ridiculous way to live. I don't want to make up the truth for myself. I want other disciples of Jesus to call me on my crap, to hold me accountable to the things that I do and say. It can be a very painful and awkward and humbling experience, and it has happened to me several times where someone loves me enough to take me aside and said, you did this and it wasn't right, and you need to repent, and you need to apologize, all these things, and I have experienced that with love and grace and compassion and with ego and you know all kinds of mixed emotions in there, and honestly, I'm grateful that I've been able to go through both. 
because we have grown as a result, as community, as family, as disciples of Jesus. So to end, I want to be honest and vulnerable with you guys for a minute. If you're new, this is more like family meeting stuff for everyone who's already part of Van City. So, you know, forgive the intensity for the next few minutes. You can just sit back and be like, oh, man, these people are crazy. <laughs> Commitment, or just this one guy, is crazy. Commitment has been one of the most significant struggles, and to be honest, the, uh, one of the most significant sources of discouragement for our church and its leadership. I don't mind having a small church at all. If that were the issue, we would have quit a long time ago. Uh, no, it's not the idea uh, of a small church that bothers me. It's the fact that right now, for example, we have more than 100 people in Van City Communities, and on a given Sunday night, about 50 of them do not come to the Sunday gathering. I badly wish that some of these people hanging out in these communities with no intentions of ever consistently showing up to the gathering would make the decision to move on to some other community or church. Not because I'm so mad or because I don't like them, but because what they're doing isn't church. And I know that sounds intense, but you are compromising the community when you exploit it that way. Because chances are, there are other people in these communities who are here, who are wanting to follow Jesus, belong to this family, and those who will not commit are compromising the community. It's essentially like going to a book club without ever intending to read the book. That one person who's going to sit there, interrupt the conversation, and say, wait, what? What happened? Oh, I'm never going to read this book. I never will. But you know what? I have thoughts about it anyway. It compromises the group. It brings the other people down. And we've heard all the reasons over the years. Someone didn't show up because they were tired, because it was sunny outside, because something was on TV. we got both of those going on tonight, so we're just in big trouble. And please, don't get me wrong. I, I am not saying that unless you're here every single Sunday, no matter what, then we don't want you. Are you kidding? That would be a wrap on Van City Church. We are not looking to give out perfect attendance award. We are looking for commitment. And I think of families in this church, people like the Ericsons, Kevin and Tiffany and their girls, week after week here participating, pitching in for years now. I don't even notice if the odd Sunday they're not here because there's such a consistent fixture of my Sunday evening or people like the Zeratis. You guys don't know this, but Kiana, who's up here leading worship, she shows up for rehearsal and then she leaves to go back home, get Dave and the kids, bring them back to church because they have one car right now and no one wants to miss church. Dave does the same thing when he's playing guitar in the band. They've done it a million times. They're alternating between playing in the band, being downstairs with the kids, driving back and forth to pull it all off. They're not complaining to anyone about it, at least not to me. Why? My guess is because it matters to them that their family is at church on Sunday. This is not an expendable hangout. This is one holy apostolic church, the communion of saints. Do you think people like Katie or Ariel or Levi or Eric have always been around because they're deacons or staff members and so they have to be here? No, we asked them to do those things because they were always here. What I want for our family is to rediscover a certain reverence for coming together as a family, for the church itself. We commit to things for different reasons. Here's an easy example. Those of you who work for someone, you commit to your job, at least in part, because your income depends on it. And most of you, I would venture a guess, can't just bail on work because it's sunny outside or because there's something on TV or whatever it might be. And sure, there are reasons that you might miss work, but the commitment presupposes that to do so requires a process, explanation and feedback and accountability. No one is expecting anyone 
to sign their lives away to Van City and to call Cam personally any and every time they can't be at the gathering. But if you want to, feel free. I think he would, <laughs> he would appreciate that kind of feedback. And it's valuable to his position. In fact, he left a note on this teaching and said, please don't. But I'm encouraging you. I think he could grow as a disciple of Jesus. <laughs> what we're asking for is just demonstrated faithfulness, commitment to the family of God, not to me, the individual, to the family of God. We're asking that you learn, you ask God's Spirit to grow you in caring for the church. That means showing up, and showing up means a few things. First, and since I already sound like grumpy dad, might as well keep going, it means showing up on time. I don't know why, but this has been a struggle for us for years. We always start the gathering at 5 o'clock, give or take a couple minutes, and the bulk of people who do show up wander into the sanctuary about 5.15 or 5.20. And look, I get it. Everyone is late from time to time, myself included. No big deal. But consistent lateness betrays something serious, or at least it can. Again, everyone is late from time to time, but being consistently late for the gathering or for your community does not demonstrate concern or even awareness for the other people in the group let alone self-sacrificial love for them. Frankly, this isn't a dinner party. It's not a free concert. We are here week after week for a reason. And that's why showing up on time means showing up to participate. Again, wherever you are at in your journey with Jesus, you are entirely welcome here. You don't have to have this all figured out. If you're like, oh my God, this is the most intense. I'd like to tell you it's not always like this, but yeah. If you're new or figuring things out, this is honestly an entirely safe place to do that. No one's going to rush you into some kind of commitment you're not ready to, to make. But for those of us who call Van City home, this isn't a show. We call it a gathering and not a service for a reason. This is not a public service provided for the consumption of a passive audience. This is church. So how do you participate in any and every way you can? You worship. You invest in the sacred space that we make to worship the living God. You utilize your voice and your body as instruments of obedience to Jesus and encouragements to your brothers and sisters who need it. I, honest to God, need to be around other disciples of Jesus who are willing to worship with wild abandon. And I am grateful that God puts some of them in my life week after week. You also serve, you pitch in in ways that you can in your own season of life. You make coffee or you set up, you serve with Van City Kids for the love of God. <laughs> Please serve with Van City Kids. Or you play in the band or you click through slides or whatever it might be. You give, you offer up finances for the well-being of the family of God, the sustaining of this particular church and the justice work that we do in the city and around the world. You pray, you engage, you listen, you speak up, you demonstrate hospitality to the other people in your family. You show up on time, consistently, self-sacrificially, ready to participate, to serve, to give. This is a family, not a service. And then finally, you commit. You demonstrate faithfulness. You know, over the years, Cam and I have had the occasional person come to us, either angry or, or sometimes very peacefully, and they let us know that for whatever reason, they've decided to move on Goodbye, Van City. And one thing that we always say to those people is this. Let us know if you need help finding a new church. Because we really do believe in church. We may be imperfect. And I'll be honest, you know, my feelings are, have been, you know, definitely been hurt more than a few times by issues with commitment or my fragile ego has been bruised, whatever. But I can say with integrity that what really matters to me isn't that 
you know, as many Christians as possible come to Van City Church, come hell or high water. What matters to me is that disciples of Jesus belong to the church with a capital C. I just got a letter this week um, from someone who was sort of haunting three different churches. One of them was uh, Van City. And my sincere reply to this person was, commit to a church, one church. And I even suggested that one of the other two might make the most sense given the context of their situation. So it's not that I want, you've got to come to ours, we really need you. Just commit to one, invest there, belong to that family and all its messiness and imperfection and go for it. And no, I'm not saying commit or get out, but with humility, ask yourself, where am I at with all this? Is it time to make a commitment or reevaluate the commitment that you have to reevaluate your approach to the community of God, the Sunday gathering, the Van City community? Is it time to consider coming to one or both? Is it time to rethink your basic gestures of commitment, things like showing up on time, participation, serving, giving? And again, you have time. No one is going to rush you out the door or scream at you if you're late or if you miss one week or anything like that. Again, it's messy. We get it. We're not perfect either. But are you ready to belong, to slowly release the American death grip on individualism? Are you ready to know other people and to be known by them with accountability and vulnerability? And are you ready for faithfulness? Are you ready, really the question is, to follow Jesus? Because it is only and always done in the context of community. And we are inviting you in. Let's go together as a family. So let's pray and ask God's Spirit to empower us to do that very thing. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.